Welcome to the Joel Beasley Tech and Science Podcast. Hey, Joel. How you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. There is a mouse in the studio today. You may see me jump up at some point. I've got a bucket and I'm going to catch this mouse. Oh, so we, we may have a guest appearance is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I told him, I told my wife, I said, he's not going to come out until the cameras start rolling. He's a popular mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I'm going to give you my quick background. Okay. okay. Just so you have some context about where my experience is at and all of that. And then we can learn about you, learn about kernel, what you guys are doing with flow. So the abbreviated story is a software developer for 17 years. So I went from individual contributor to building a team to teams of teams. And I did that for a you know, repeat, rinse and repeat for a while. And then I started uh, writing and sharing what I learned. You know, here's the mistakes I made next generation. Don't make these mistakes. And that turned into a blog, turned into a book, turned into the podcast. So I kind of like went from software engineer to podcaster to podcast production company owner. That's sort of my, that is my trajectory. That's how I got to this call today, man. Cool. That's quite an evolution, I would say. And I'm guessing when you started 17 years ago, software developing, uh, this is not the end point you, you imagined. Uh, no, I'm not a billionaire yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. Still working on it. <laughs> cool. Well, um, i tell you a little bit about myself. So yeah. I um, you know, did a PhD in electrical engineering at Columbia. And in, in that, I was developing custom camera chips that look at not the color of light, but the temporal properties of it. So how it changes over time. And these time scales are really short on the order of nanoseconds. And the reason this is interesting is because a lot of biological molecules have properties that can be measured optically through these very short time scale measurements. And so it's a, a technique called fluorescence lifetime imaging, and it's all based on time of flight measurements. So I had a PhD basically designing custom time of flight chips. And in that, I kind of learned everything from the device layer. So how the PN junctions and diodes that detect the light all the way up to the software layer work. So kind of everything in between designing the circuits, designing the boards, uh, writing some low-level firmware, writing software. So it gave me this really broad experience to start out with and kind of a a good understanding of whole systems. From there, I had a, a short time at Intel, working in their research labs on some biosensing platforms, and then went on to a startup called Quantergy, where I was developing a LiDAR sensor. So doing, kind of going back to my roots, uh, what I did my PhD on, and doing time of flight measurement. We send these pulses of laser light out and see how long it takes to come back. So we know the speed of light. That's why you're measuring them. Yeah. I was like, why would anybody care about why light changes on a nanosecond level? So in LiDAR, that's kind of on a microsecond level. So it's a different time scales, but same principles. So you're pulsing laser light and looking at uh, microsecond time scales. So I worked there for a few years, developed some detector technology, built up a team, kind of grew that, that kind of detection team up quite a bit. Um, and then I was approached by the team at Kernel and Brian Johnson, who had this idea of uh, measuring the brain using time of flight on the nanosecond timescale again. So going back to the shorter timescales that I had done my PhD on. And so the, the concept is you put in a pulse of laser light and you look at how that light changes over time for this you know short you know few nanoseconds. And that tells you something about the properties of the tissue uh, inside the head. And you can 
you know, by detecting changes in those properties, tell what parts of the brain are active in a certain time. And this is kind of a well-understood phenomenon. It's been around for many decades, but um, it had previously existed as kind of racks of equipment in research laboratory and never as a, you know, integrated device. And so sounded like a challenging problem. Uh, and, you know, I, I had the right skills. I had the experience building the teams and kind of decided to join and start uh, start helping build up that technology and figure out what exactly to build and how to build it and what the right technology stack was and, you know, everything along the way to get to what is kernel flow today. So it took us about four years, a little over four years to get here, but we, we've got something working and we're kind of putting the, the finishing touches on the production release for later this year. What, what can I do with it? Ah, okay. It's a great, great question. So I'll tell you what it does fundamentally, and then we can talk about what that, that uh, could tell you kind of from our applications perspective. So fundamentals, are you familiar with a pulse oximeter? So you may have like a smartwatch that has like an SPO2 sensor in it, or if you've gone to the doctor or hospital, they, they clip on your finger that's a pulse oximeter it's measuring the oxygen in your blood and so fundamentally what we do with curl flow is we generate a map of blood oxygenation across the entire brain so we're seeing small differences in oxygen in, in your blood through, throughout the brain and what that tells you is what parts of the brain are active so as the brain uh, does work or parts of the brain does work those parts need some oxygen in order to you know, do the metabolism to, you know, fire the neurons to, to, to produce the function. So kernel flow measures that change in oxygenation. And, you know, this is what's called a hemodynamic measurement. So we're looking at changes in hemoglobin oxygenation. So, you know, the hemoglobin is the thing that carries oxygen around in your bloodstream. And we're measuring how much of it has oxygen versus how much of it doesn't. And we use a technique called near-infrared spectroscopy. So we use two wavelengths of light, which is a spectroscopy component, and it allows us to differentiate the oxygenated versus deoxygenated. So high level, we're measuring blood oxygenation as a map of your whole brain. And you know what you can do with that is you can start to ask questions like, what is my brain doing when I'm just sitting, kind of daydreaming, staring off into nothing? And this is what's called you know resting state. This is what the brain looks like with nothing is going on resting brain face <laughs> yeah, yeah resting brain face <laughs> and, and so it's just like one very simple example another is i think you probably saw some of the work we've done playing video games right so like what is happening in the brain when a person is playing video games and we have this hypothesis that you know we would see uh, actually almost the entire brain light up like you're using so much of your brain playing a video game you're using your motor cortex to control a mouse or keyboard you're using your prefrontal cortex to plan out activities and, and how you're going to move or what your next point of the game is. Your visual cortex is lit up as it processes all of this, you know, visual information coming in. The parts of your brain handling auditory or processing sounds, like trying to, you know, a lot of games use spatial audio type uh, tricks to to give you signs and cues for what's happening in the world you're in. So, so much of your brain is is being activated by video games and we actually saw this in some of the measurements we we took is that you know when you play video games tons of stuff is happening it's not actually bad for your brain you're actually working out the entire brain when you play these games and those are just a couple of examples i mean we could probably talk all day like could you measure the brain while doing x and the answer is probably yes and one of the things that 
kernel flow enables is asking questions in a new way because it's now a portable device and you can kind of use it in more naturalistic environments. Um, and we could talk a little bit if you're interested in kind of what the uh, our legacy devices, what, what the whole history of functional brain measurement was built on and how those don't really quite uh, provide the same type of experience. So you took something, made it better, portable, and you're doing an infrastructure play where you're building these electronic infrastructures that people can then build applications and things on top of? Yeah, I would I would definitely call it kind of a platform play where you built this, you know, the worst, best analogy I have is like, it's like the iPhone, right? Like it's the, the hardware technology that's needed to enable so many new applications. And can I dream of all those applications today? No, right? Like who knew when the iPhone launched that the most used app would be TikTok in 2022, right? Like no one would have predicted that. And I, I would say the same thing about a device like Kernel Flow, which is really kind of a platform for building applications on the brain, on information about the brain. And I don't think any of us today can predict 10 years from now what the significance of that will be or what the most uh, most used app would be in that uh, kind of ecosystem. How much time do you spend on TikTok? Uh, zero. <laughs> I have not been able to get into it. Yeah. I've tried multiple times. I just... Maybe it's an engineer thing. It's like maybe. maybe I'm a little bit of a control freak. I don't know. It's like I want to... <laughs> I want to control my own destiny. I want to like, I don't want content served to me randomly or based on some algorithm. I, I want to choose it. Uh, I'm in control here. Yeah. Does hair gel interfere with it reading your brain? Like how, does hair style, hair products, does that interfere? Yeah. So we use an optical technique. So as I mentioned, we're firing light into the head and you can imagine anything that blocks light is going to block signal. And so hair is one of those things that's a little bit of a challenge for us. Hair gel, I think the only problem it would cause is that it makes the hair kind of clump together more. So you kind of have a harder time fighting through it. But what we've done is actually kind of neat. We designed these modules with kind of spring-loaded tips on them. So they're kind of like mini brushes that you kind of put on your hair and kind of wiggle around as you get it into place so it can get down and touch the scalp. So if you had gel in your hair and a nice hairstyle, when you started the day, you take a uh, measurement with kernel flow, that's no longer going to be true. But, you know, then you have kernel flow hair, which is, I think, a mark of pride in itself. Is there anything like at your labs? If I fly, where are you located, by the way? Uh, we're in Los Angeles. So if I fly out to Los Angeles, right, and put on one of your helmets, uh, what do you call them? I'm sorry, you probably don't call them helmets. What do you call them? So I, I try and call them headsets. But headsets. helmet is a very common thing. Headset sounds a little nicer. Helmet's like I'm putting this on to protect my head, whereas headset is like this is. You're in the. You're too deep in the space. You're too deep <laughs> in the space because, like, from an outsider, I'm like, I don't know, it's a helmet. <laughs> if it covered my eyes, I'd probably say headset. Does it cover your eyes? Is it? No, it's just. It a does helmet. not. No, it's, it's like just a, a, it's like a yeah. metal hat type deal. Uh, I completely forgot my <laughs> my my question. You're gonna fly there. to LA. Fly put to the LA. Headset on. Put the headset on. What would I be able to do with it? Okay. Right now, today. Like, could I play a game and like think about things and have it move characters? Like, what could I do with it today? Yeah. So one of the, I think, most interesting demos that we've been working on these days is a focus training demo. So it's kind of a neurofeedback application where you try to focus on a topic or focus on a thing or let your mind wander. And so you kind of train your brain to be able to kind of modulate between these two different states. And so 
it's something that you know, I don't know if you practice any mindfulness or meditation type things, but it's something that kind of fits into that space where you can get a feedback, a score based on your brain activity of how well you were focusing or how well you were mind wandering. And so you can use that score as quantified information to say like, ah, I'm doing better, I'm doing worse, like let me try different techniques, let me, you know, change what I'm doing so you can improve. And so it's a really interesting thing because it gives you immediate feedback. It is something that we we measure in real time. So you don't have to like wait for it to go to the cloud and get processed where a lot of our earlier kind of demonstrations and things we're, we're doing. We still have all of that capability and, and use it quite heavily when we look for kind of larger larger scale kind of big data type results. But this is kind of an individual personalized feedback system that uh, we've been developing. And there are a lot of applications for it outside of just mindfulness, right? Like you can imagine all the things you could do if you could improve focus or improve, you know, some dimension of your, you know, your thinking, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever label you apply to it, whether it's focus, mind wandering, attention, stress. I was curious, can you tell if your brain is like tired or fatigued? Cause like, you know, at the end of the day when you're just burnt, can you, can you put the helmet on and be like, am I burnt or do I have like some more in me? Yeah. We can't yet. Like we, we don't have a, you know, an app for fatigue yet. Kind of our first app that we're building is this focus type of one. But yeah, I think it is possible. Right. And the reason I think it's possible is we've done some other things. Like we've, we did the study, uh, it's maybe about halfway through right now, data collection where we're giving people alcohol and you're looking at, you know, a placebo and then two different doses of alcohol up to the, the legal limit, 0.08 and seeing how their brain changes in response to the alcohol. And what you find is that there are some compensatory mechanisms. So you see the brain activating parts of it uh, to overcome alcohol to an extent. So when you kind of get this lower dose, people uh, on average show this compensatory mechanism. But then at a certain point, close to the 0.08, you actually see that that compensation fades. So your brain is no longer able to make up for the impairment caused by the alcohol. And I bring this up in the context of fatigue because it's probably something similar. It's like, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit tired. I'm just pushed through. You can do it a little bit longer and probably engage a little more of your brain, overcome some of that, that fatigue you're feeling. But at a certain point, you're probably just like, all right, like I am completely burnt. Time to call it a day. So we haven't measured it, but I could see it being something within the possibilities of, of what we could measure. And it kind of parallels, like I was saying, this kind of impairment type of study that we had done or uh, in the process of doing. Nice, nice. And then, sorry, the, I see the mouse. Oh, do you? <laughs> By the way, if you were in studio with me, we'd be dealing with this together. It would be, it'd be quite fun. I actually had an in-person podcast yesterday, and I'm so glad the mouse wasn't here. <laughs> have you ever put this on mice have you ever used mice in your testing at all no every test we've done has been on humans so the technology itself kind of fundamentally is safe for human use and actually one of the interesting things about kernel is that it makes it so more more people can get their brain measured without a kind of medical condition so i never had any kind of brain measurement done before i joined kernel and i've done dozens or maybe hundreds at this point of brain measurements like uh, size like size of your physical brain no no just like you know what's going on inside Blood my flow. brain like what's my brain doing so okay 
So we, we've done all our testing on healthy volunteers, important. Uh, so that, you know, people choose to kind of participate and help evaluate this. It's safe. We knew safe levels of light. Uh, so we never had to, to do anything in animal models or mice, pigs, anything like that. And I don't know, you, you mentioned kind of seeing our headset or our big metal helmet as you, you described it. And that uh, isn't really mouse size. So we'd have we'd have a little bit of an engineering challenge, I think, just to make a system small enough that could go on a mouse. Oh, man. Have you found anything new or interesting about humans in all of this research? Huh. Yeah, that's a good question. So we've had the technology online for a little over a year. And a lot of that time has been doing things that have already been done. So what we call validation tests. So showing that our system can reproduce the same results that others have gotten previously. The one kind of exploratory thing that we started doing was this study with ketamine. So we had a partner who sponsored a study on looking at could a person wear kernel flow while experiencing a psychedelic experience. And we chose to use ketamine for that because it is probably the most easily accessible psychedelic. We went through the FDA and had an ethics review uh, board kind of oversee the study and did everything the, the proper ways, but it, it's still a lot easier than going to one of the more intense psychedelics. So we looked at in healthies, what you know, healthy individuals, what does uh, ketamine do to the brain? And we had a small study, it was only 15 people, but we saw some interesting results from that and we're going to share, I think next week at a conference, some of the preliminary analysis and then uh, probably later this fall, we'll release a, a paper on some of the findings that we had from that ketamine study. So it looks promising. I don't want to uh, reveal any results right now. Uh, so, but it, we are on the, the verge of maybe seeing something new for the first time with, with kernel flow. And part of that is enabled. I mentioned before, if you, you kind of look at the legacy devices that were used to do these type of measurements, they all exist in kind of research settings, hospitals. Uh, big rooms that are dedicated to these these types of equipment. And we just took our device to a clinician's office in Marina Del Rey, who treats patients and they are able to kind of look out over the ocean and like be in this very comfortable, more natural environment, like, a, you know, calming, a, a great place to have uh, that type of treatment done. So we took our device there and did all of our measurements in that setting and we're able to, to record data in a, you know, relatively short amount of time and get some information about what's happening inside the brain when a person is experiencing a psychedelic trip uh, due to ketamine. And so you're watching the blood flow during the trip. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just blood flow. What, what we're looking at specifically is how different parts of the brain activate in different sequence or with each other. So some some parts will be kind of synchronized. They'll be activating in tandem and others will be asynchronous and so you can kind of look at how these different parts of the brain are connected and and working together and that tells you something about what's going on in that person's state of consciousness or whatever it is that uh, is being represented by those what are called networks brain networks so then that's your software sitting on top of the physical device just the physical device only measures the oxygen in the brain and the location of the oxygen in the brain and then all the other interpretations, sequence of what areas are fine, all that stuff is in the software layer. That's right. 
Yeah, so we have a team of neuroscientists and data scientists that kind of take both like the understanding of what the brain does and how like the function is understood from a scientific perspective and then kind of apply data science techniques onto that understanding and the data we've collected to try and draw conclusions. So it's a really, you know, our our team is so talented in, I don't know, like 13 different dimensions from, as I mentioned before, kind of the, the device that we, we start with all the way up to analysis layers where we're, we're doing like machine learning and uh, looking at ways to infer information from the, the signal we measure. What about, like, have you ever noticed that people could do something physical that changed the results somehow? Like if my breathing pattern changed over the course of the measurement, like how any sort of physical change in my my body would also affect what's going on in the brain? Yeah, so these are what are could be considered as confounds. So you'd say like, how do you know it's brain activity and not just, you know, something due to change in respiration? And there are a couple of ways. So one, we have one heart and one set of lungs. So changes in respiration or heart rate, like pulsing, those are global changes. We tend to see them everywhere. So it's kind of a common mode signal, if you were to think of it that way. The other way is by looking at the frequency content of these different signals. So you know that respiration, I think, you know, adult humans are something like 15 breaths per minute or somewhere in that neighborhood. So you know the frequency of respiration. You know the frequency of heart rate, right? Like, you know, resting heart rate somewhere in the 60, 70 beats per minute. And so you can use that information to kind of look at the frequency content of the signals you measure and kind of isolate what is coming from from different parts of it. And then you can intelligently kind of pick that out and say, like, this is not, it's not due to the brain. This is. But the the biggest thing is that really being able to measure these maps give us a an idea of these global patterns so we can see what is common mode due to kind of our cardiovascular system and what is differential due to kind of changes in uh, brain activity in those regions. Can we take a look at some of this stuff? Can I pull up like a website or something? Sure. What's your website? Uh, Colonel.com. All right. Let's make this bigger. Oh, it looks much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> the, the version we're about to release is even, I think looks even nicer than that. But these three still images here are, are pretty interesting, and I can talk to those quickly to kind of give you a sense of what the data looks like. Yeah, it looks like heat map for, for people that can't see it, which they should go watch on YouTube. It looks like a heat map of the brain along with some charting of whatever that is, you'll tell me. Ketamine dose? Yeah. So this was a pilot we did before we did our 15 uh, ketamine participants, and what we 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 did this pilot for was to see if we could kind of measure the difference between before and after administration of ketamine. And on the leftmost uh, figure there, what you see is this brain map that I was telling you about. So this is a functional connectivity map. So we've identified or kind of carved the brain up into a hundred different regions. And then we look at how different regions are correlated with one another. And the strength of that correlation is represented here in this map. And then once ketamine is administered, we look at how those the, the strength of those correlations change. And so if you look at the after ketamine takes effect, what you can see is that there's a, a decrease in activity in a lot of these regions. And that's thought to be kind of the, 
you know, dissolving um, some of the the networks that the the brain has to kind of maintain its conscious or awake state. So as it enters this kind of psychedelic, more freeform brain state. It got rid of the red ones. So it, it turned down their neural connectivity. So Joel, the the best analogy I, I love to use for this is if you kind of imagine all the major cities of the world, you know, they each have an airport and you've seen like these maps of flight paths between like major airports. And you can see that like New York's a major hub, London's a hub, Tokyo, wh- wherever the main hubs are, Hong Kong. Uh, and you can see the strength of connection between those hubs. And what you're looking at in this map is really the strength of connection between regions and the brain. So it's like how many flights per day between those paths kind of, but it's really just how those brain regions are connected, how strongly linked they are. And then if you think of major world events like a volcano erupting in Iceland, and you look at how that changes the flight patterns, you could see, you could very clearly see just by looking at flight patterns alone without knowing anything else about the world, but the flights between uh, New York and London are disrupted for some reason, right? So there's something going on in the world between New York and London, and there's no connectivity between those two nodes now. And that's a similar concept here. So that would be a blue line in reducing the amount of connection between in the bottom. So on the bottom panel, the blue would be a reduction in connection. There would be a disruption between New York and London. Does that help kind of relate it to something a little more tangible? So what we're looking at is strength of connection between different regions. So were there, are there any new connections between the two or no? So this isn't uh, reforming any connections. Uh, at least this pilot analysis shows no reduction here. And again, I don't want to overstate any claims here because this is pilot data that's presented. And as I mentioned, we'll, we'll release a full publication later this fall that will go through a kind of full peer review process. I mean, the premise that drugs can slow down brain activity is, is not something that's hard to, to sell. <laughs> <laughs> just, just being real here. So no new connections. Those are two identical maps. And then so basically it just cooled down the connections. It basically it's, is slowing down the brain the right word or no? No, it's not really slowing down the brain. It's just changing the way the brain is synchronized, connected, uh, however you want to think about it. But it's, it's the strength of two regions working together. Is this connection? Oh, I'm I'm get you're helping me now. I'm starting okay. to get it. Okay. All right. So basically, like you could reroute data more evenly. Right. Yeah. So you you can think about it as like these red ones are like really deep ruts, and then the drug comes along and it's smoothing over those ruts a bit. So they're a little bit shallower across the whole brain rather than having a few deep ones. Got it. Okay. That's kind of cool. So. I wonder if you had somebody wear it while they sleep, if you would get like similar results from the processes of like when we sleep pruning our synapses and such. Yeah. I mean, that's a a really good question. I would say our headset today is not really designed to be worn during sleep. And then we'd have to make some adaptations in order to support something like that. But it would be a really interesting study. And what I hear you getting at though, is just like, it would be really interesting to see what happens to the brain during blank and you could fill in that blank with so many different activities. Uh, and I would try to argue that kernel flow can't solve all those activities today, but it's greatly in- increased the set of possibilities that you could fill in the blank with just by its new form factor and ease of use. 
Yeah, you just need to put this out here and let, let the monkeys monkey with it. Yeah. That's pretty cool, man. You must really enjoy your work. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, I should also qualify all the information I just said. Like, I'm an electrical engineer. My neuroscience training has been on the job. So, <laughs> you know, I could have gotten a fact here or there wrong. But for the most part, general idea is correct. It's a lot of fun learning new things and really trying to, to understand what are the most accessible questions we could ask and how can we ask them in a way that will will get good and meaningful results. So why psychedelic, why ketamine? Why was that your team's first thought of like, hey, is it because you guys just want to get your hands on some ketamine, like legally? <laughs> or <laughs> did like, why was that the first test to run? Yeah. So we actually had a customer come to us. So that was done in partnership with a company called Cybin. And they were interested in understanding more about what happens in the brain during the administration of certain psychedelics. Ketamine is not their primary psychedelic. You may guess from their name that they're interested more in things like psilocybin. Yeah. They're developing uh, novel molecules to treat things like depression and anorexia, and they want to understand more how the molecules functionally affect the brain. So this was their first question is just, can you measure psychedelic effects? Can you measure someone having a psychedelic experience with this device on? Is it safe? Are there any risks trying to understand what the, the landscape looks like? I've been seeing a lot more literature and, and content around treatment using these sort of psychedelics for PTSD. So it's been, I think, what, the past like two, three, three years or so, it's like really kicked up. So the idea that somebody came to you and, you know, did a business with you in order to do some research on this. And I don't know, um, can they use psilocybin? legally now through the FDA or did because I mean ketamine's used as like a vet drug a lot right so was it because you couldn't get your hands legally on psilocybin or there are paths they're just more difficult so you're correct ketamine is an approved anesthetic so if you you know have anesthesia for surgery part of that cocktail may include ketamine even as a human and it has also been approved in a form as ketamine for in the treatment of, of depression and so it's like a, a nasal spray that's sold. So these are these are things that are out on the market already and FDA approved. Psilocybin, it's more difficult. It's a controlled substance. So there's a lot more approval and work that goes into doing it, uh, at least in the U.S. So as a first kind of starter psychedelic ketamine in, in the right dose. So you don't want to go to full anesthetic doses. Otherwise, the you know, person just goes blank. Uh, yeah. So it's a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine. That, uh, produces the psychedelic effect. Nice. What do we want to get out there to the world? We got we have like six more minutes or so here. I want to make sure that there's any call to action for you guys or any publicity type stuff that you want to get out there that we do that. Yeah, I mean the the big call to action for us is just if you are working on something that affects the brain and you want to measure what that effect is and you want to measure it in a quantified way, then you know come talk to us. We're very interested in partnerships. We have a lot of things going on with other drugs that are uh, legal in most states in the U.S. and drugs that are used for treating certain conditions. So all those things are not yet public, but they're they're in discussions and things that we're we're planning in the background. I mentioned alcohol as kind of a an easy accessible starter drug. Again, like you know, have some alcohol when you go buy it off the shelf and uh, administer it safely. Again, under uh, kind of uh, oversight of a ethics board. So we're always doing our experiments on humans in a, a safe and responsible way. 
So to date, I would say a lot of things that affect the brain have been built on uh, subjective measures, right? Can can you tell me how you feel after I administer this drug to you or after you take this treatment or you play this video game or whatever? Can you tell me how fatigued your brain feels today? And at Kernel, really what we, we want to do is take the subjective out of that and bring in an objective measure, which is directly from the brain, right? So a lot of things, you know, to get these subjective measures, you're using proxies it's like a survey or questionnaires or looking at things like, I don't know, your heart rate, how your heart rate changes and saying something about how maybe your your focus or attention is. And what we want to do is get away from proxies and get straight to the source, right? So much of what makes us who we are and uh, makes us unique as individuals is in our brains and how our brains respond to things. And, you know, we'd really like to get there and quantify that. What are your thoughts on objective results from your device, like let's say there's objective results, whether it's from your device or not, just objective results of brain activity and different people causing, the look identical on the data, but they're having different subjective experiences. Do you think that that's possible? I, I think it is. At least what I would expect is that if you look at people having a similar experience, if you look at, let's assume for a bit that reports of that experience are normally distributed. So I would expect that the objective measures would have a tighter standard deviation than the subjective ones. Like you'll, you'll see higher variance in what people report because what is a level five pain scale to me may be a level two pain scale to you, for instance, right? Like we all have different reference points for how we convey what our subjective experience is. So I would expect kind of you look at things in group or population level, you start to see these broader distributions from subjective measures than you would from objective. And if we could show that, then we could start to build trust in the objective measure that like, yes, we were able to form kind of consistent distributions. It's not just random. And with this, we're able to kind of more deterministically develop things. And, you know, even if your subjective experience is slightly different, right? Like we're applying different gain or offset to our, our relative conveying of these these scales on one to 10, we at least now have an objective measure to push it in the direction we want it to go. So maybe we want to reduce some kind of suffering score or increase some sort of pleasure or focus or attention score. Then you can start to have objective measures to do these things regardless of what the subjective experience may be. Yeah. Well, as an interviewer and an engineer, my job is to find the edge cases. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, in general, you can use this, collect data and find directions that you might need to go. So maybe someone comes in and they're like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just don't feel like myself. They could put it on. They're like, oh, okay, your brain flow is that of one that matches this type of depression. And generally, these two or three treatments are where you would want to start. It would just help. Is that kind of like an area? I mean, I think that's one of our like long-term visions for a device like this, especially in the the realm of depression is, you know, can we differentiate types of depression and people who are good candidates for treatment in certain directions? I think that would be, if we could, if we could achieve that, I would personally be very satisfied. And I think that the, the team as a whole would be as well. Does anybody ever refer to you as somebody who like reads minds? <laughs> um, we get all kinds of interesting inbound things through our support at Kernel. 
Uh, I can imagine. Email address. Yes. And, and some of those are like, you know, mind reading and wanting to know like what this chip that was implanted in, in their brain was doing through whatever, you know, NSA or someone like it, we get all kinds of wild stories that come in. But at times, yes, we're referred to as people who read mind. That's a podcast we need to start. Like <laughs> your support inbox. That should be the podcast. And we just talk about like the, cause I'll tell you what people send the craziest things. And, um, it's really great to meet you, man. Is, yeah. did we get everything done that we needed to get done? Colonel.com. Easy, easy name for the tech community to remember. Yeah. Good job getting that domain, by the way. It, it was work. We were Colonel.co for a while. So it, it took us some time to get How the dot com. How much did that M cost you? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, private. I, yeah. I don't actually know, but I don't know that I want to know either. So correct, correct. Well, this is fantastic. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Oh, it's so great. This is fun. 